Tarry here, where the stories never grow old, and you hear something new every time they are told, and it comes clear. So tarry here, where it doesn't matter your age, and when we gather round the table, we all take the stage year after year. So tarry here. Welcome to the Enlightened Radio Storytelling Hour at EnlightenedRadio.org. This is Fanny Crawford. And Stas Ziokowski. And today is February 12th, a Monday, 2024. Our theme today is personal experiences of Black life, culture, and history. We're celebrating Black History Month today. And what else? I have some announcements. Do you have some announcements, Dash? Oh, I do. And, and my only regret of the new year is that I did not bet all <laughs> during the football season because all season, this is, this is just one of those funny things. And, and the reason I don't bet is because people who bet can lose their fortune and their house and their family and all that stuff. But all this football season, I have been cheering for the Chiefs I, and I'm talking to my brother, and he and I talk about bets and all this stuff all the time because he used to be a gambler. And and if if I had stayed and just put a couple bucks each time I bet with my with my brother and maybe with a bookie, I would have made a fortune because I picked the Steelers to beat the Ravens twice. <laughs> And I picked the Chiefs to beat the Ravens. And then I picked the Chiefs to win the Super Bowl. And if I had just bet a couple of thousand dollars, I'd be a millionaire. I'm sorry <laughs> to hear that. Yeah, that's, but that's good. That's the story I, of about 50 million men's <laughs> lives. If only they had bet when they knew they were going to win. <laughs> okay. Well, at least you're having a good time. Oh, yeah, and that's the important thing to me. <laughs> I'm never going to take a chance on losing $1,000 on a football game. It would be insane. <laughs> yeah, I find football in general pretty insane, but we don't want to yeah. get to that. <laughs> well, no. Well, yeah. right. Okay, well, here's my first announcement. I want to make sure that all of our listeners know about the National Women's Storytelling Festival, which starts as beginning as a Zoom event on March 14th, that's a Thursday, but quickly moves to live and Zoom. So there are lots of options for people to attend. I also wanna say that 20% of the audience each year for the past five years has been male. So men are welcome, <laughs> both on Zoom and in person. And yours truly will be telling both on Friday evening through the opening session. Uh, and then on Sunday morning, I have a full one hour slot. And I am hoping that everybody I know in the world will attend. And the other big important piece of that is that you need to know if you're at all interested, early bird pricing, which is much less money than paying full price, ends on February 15th. So I will be sending out emails and I'm giving out my phone number right now, 301-730-1638. Uh, and my email address at fanitsky at hotmail.com so that everybody can get this link from me, better said than done.com slash women's dash festival. Better said than done.com slash women's dash festival. And you can get the entire schedule, all the pricing options. It's, it's very inexpensive if you only do one or two sessions. Um, it can be pricey up from there, but, <laughs> uh, but if you're not going for the entire three days, four days, um, it's quite reasonable. And I encourage everybody to come one way or another. It's in Fairfax, Virginia, but you can come on Zoom as well. Okay. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. 
Oh, okay. And anything on stories in the round? Nothing more than what I said last week, which is that I have three tellers lined up, but I don't have their contracts in hand. Okay. So I'm not announcing, and I have a couple other people interested, and I will keep everybody posted. All right. Actually, I, I hope to have uh, those contracts by the middle of the week this week. So if I do, I will post That'd something. Great. Super. Yes, I think All so. All right. And you're, right. you probably want to talk about tomorrow. Tomorrow, the opening session of year 12, the 12th season of the Speak Story series in Shepherdstown at the uh, community center in Shepherdstown, right down there on German Street, and, and uh, right um, at 7.30 on Tuesday, the 13th of February, the Speak Story series will be featuring Gail Ross. And Gail Ross is going to do a special program. She is a member of the Cherokee Nation, a direct descendant of John Ross, who was the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation during the Trail of Tears. And her program tomorrow will be called Inside the Beaded Beltway. And it will describe the relationship between the tribal nations and the United States government from the time of the Revolutionary War to the present day. And um, I'm really excited about seeing that. I've seen Gail Ross speak many times at the National Storytelling Festival. And um, I'm looking forward to it. 12th season, this is gonna be dynamite. And there's a great lineup In March, Peter Cook was a deaf storyteller. In April, Antonio Raja, who was a magnificent storyteller. And if you want to find the rest of the season, and it's better to take a look at our website, speakstoryseries.com, and you can get season tickets. And at that website, instead of listening to me blab about these people, you can read about each one of the great storytellers that will be there every month for the next 10 months. And it'll, you'll just be amazed. And we'll finish the season in November with the 2024 commission piece, a world premiere of a brand new story, never been told before. And the contest is on now. The person who's going to be telling that month has not been chosen yet, but they will be chosen soon. Very exciting. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And so I guess, you know. I want to thank Andy Arthurman for opening our show because I forgot to do that when we first opened. Thank you, Andy, for singing and playing for us, Terry, here, welcoming all our listeners. Right. Who's so, going first, Dash? I think ladies should go first all the time. You do? <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm not okay. wearing a dress today, so. <laughs> huh. All right. Well. But sometimes this, I'll go first. This is my contribution to personal experiences of Black life, culture, and history. Well, Mr. Z, you know that one of my early experiences as a child was hearing the stories my dad either told or read to me about his grandfather, Thomas Henry Barnes. T.H. Barnes is what the family calls my dad's grandfather. My dad's stories included anecdotes that T.H. Barnes passed down about his own father, Henry, T.H.'s own father. Now, I was no more than three or four years old when I started hearing these stories from my dad. Needless to say, as you know, they made a big impression on me. They were origin stories for me, in a sense. That story of my great-great-grandfather, Henry, born enslaved 130-some years before I was born, 
and taken as a small boy from his family on a farm near Richmond, Virginia to Hagerstown, Maryland. Now, Stash, you know this from hearing my rendition of these stories, that in Hagerstown, Henry was eventually taught to read, write, and calculate, and then trained as a gardener and a seed man, so that along with 18 other enslaved black men who were educated to various trades, Henry could be hired out by his Hagerstown enslaver, the owner of human property, who was always just called Reverend Barnes. Now, Reverend Barnes built his own wealth by contracting these men out into the Washington County community and the larger region to enrich himself and his family. Now, I understood pretty early in my life that these stories were family history, that Henry had told some of these stories to his son, T.H., and that T.H. had shared the history with his children and grandchildren, including my dad and his seven brothers and sisters. And now daddy was sharing these important stories with me. And later on, when my younger brother came along with him too. The other likely most important background information to this discussion of black family life culture and history that we're having today is that both of my parents were book people, readers of history and book collectors for most of their lives. So the various homes that we lived in were always filled with thousands of books, novels, collections of poetry, art books documenting paintings and sculpture and religious art of master craftsmen and women. But more than anything, my parents had books about history on their shelves. In some ways, my understanding of my own life was that it is grounded in family history, at least 130 years of family history, US history and world history. And that little boy, Henry, born in 1818 in Richmond, Virginia, and educated for the purpose of enriching his owner, and then manumitted, freed from enslavement, or maybe more accurately, encouraged and assisted in escaping from a lifetime of enslavement by that Reverend Barnes. That story has been in my head and my heart since I was in nursery school. So aside from being educated through fairy tales and folk tales and nursery rhymes and children's finger plays and Greek mythology and some cultural and religious history from my mother's Jewish family and Western and Central European traditions, I also had the cultural memories of Black history. Everything from the history of chattel slavery in the Americas to what it takes to be a skilled and successful gardener and seed man, or a domestic worker and a caterer as my two grandmothers were. The varieties of Christian faith practiced by my African-American forebears and their descendants, my contemporary aunts and uncles, my father's son. And what educated and undereducated working black men and women were reading and talking about during those same periods. Some of my earliest memories of the world around me were about churches and synagogues and Quaker meeting houses in Philadelphia and Buffalo, and Oleange in Jamestown, New York, and New York City, listening to my aunts and uncles and cousins on both sides of the family share stories about their own and their family members' working lives. A printer, caterer, doctor, prison guard, retail shop fashionista, <laughs> tailor, domestic worker, machinist, traveling salesman, numbers runner, nurse, college professor, and many more. I loved sitting on the sidelines, listening to adult conversations about work and politics and humor. 
realities and fantasies, foibles and the achievements of humanity. Well, September 1963, I was 13 years old. By that time, following my dad's early example, I'd been reading the funny papers of the Philadelphia Bulletin and sometimes the Philadelphia Inquirer for half a decade. And that meant that I sometimes also saw the front page headlines and looked at some of the photos in the news stories. And of course, there was also Walter Cronkite on TV every evening when I was at my best friend's house, Paul, Paula Greenberg's house. After school, we would watch old Walter summarize the national highlights after we watched Superman with George Reeves and sometimes a cartoon show with Popeye and clutch cargo cartoons, which coincidentally, I remember very clearly my dad also loved. So while I don't remember actually reading or listening to the news the evening of Sunday, September 15th, 1963. I remember very well that I heard or read about it and also heard adults troubled and horrified by the news that four white supremacist members of a Ku Klux Klan chapter in Birmingham, Alabama had bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church there, killing four young girls ages 11 to 14 and injuring as many as 22 other people, seriously injuring some of them. The four girls were Addie Mae Collins, age 14, Cynthia Wesley, age 14, Carol Robertson, age 14, and the youngest, Carol Denise McNair, 11 years old. I distinctly remember hearing over and over again about four little girls, four little girls, and finally understanding their actual ages, I have a somewhat displaced outrage on their behalf that at least three of them had not been identified as teens my own age. That just seemed wrong to me. And of course, it was entirely beside the point. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. arrived in Birmingham in the aftermath to speak at the funerals, to help leaders of the Black community strategize going forward, along with many, many other um, leaders of the civil rights movement and um, Black and white. Aside from the funerals, there were ongoing demonstrations and several days of rioting, damage to white and Black businesses and arrests, notably not of the bombers, but of rock-throwing Black teenagers, and a lot more racially motivated gunfire, including a fatally injured Black teen who was shot when he did not immediately comply with a stop order by a policeman. I afterward heard my parents' young friends. Debbie Amos was one, and I've told stories about Debbie Amos on this radio show before. She was a freedom rider back from her trip south to work on voter registration campaigns. I heard Debbie and others refer to Birmingham as Bombingham. And I thought at the time that label was about the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. I didn't understand till much later that Birmingham had a 20 year national reputation as an extreme example, but by no means singular status for its violent defense of segregated housing, where yeah. even tentative conversations about integration regularly triggered deadly responses. Birmingham was the home of Bull Connor, commissioner of public safety who led much of the violence. Between 1947 and 1965, at least 50 dynamite explosions occurred in Birmingham all at black homes, churches, and businesses. One black neighborhood was simply called Dynamite Hill because of the repeated attacks there. It took 14 years for the first prosecution of any of the four KKK bombers to begin. 
In the end, only three of them were imprisoned and there is still speculation that there may have been others involved. I paid attention to this progress over the years, but I did not understand till a decade later that the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church marked a turning point for the civil rights movement and it was a significant catalyst in passage of the Civil Rights Act that Lyndon Johnson lobbied for and that Congress passed in 1964. I wanna close this little retrospective um, on a really positive note, um, a really warm and loving shout out to another of my personal experiences with Black life, culture, and history which is the establishment and opening of the National Museum of African American History and Culture on September 24th, 2016. It is still the only national museum devoted exclusively to the documentation of African American life and history. And I've been there twice in person, multiple times online doing research, but I just, yearn to immerse myself in that building and its treasures. The first time I was there, I was invited as a storyteller by powerhouse teller, Diane Ferlot, soon after the museum opened in 2016 to participate in a seminar and a tour there. And I was blown away by the welcome of the staff, by the knowledge and generosity of the other assembled tellers and by the work being done in that place to unearth and share culture and accomplishments of Black Americans and communities of color all over the Americas. The second time that I visited, I was with 20 people from my own Crawford Barnes family reunion. And my primary memory of that trip was exhaustion as we try to cover all the exhibits and resources that might possibly unveil more of our own family history for us. But it was a wonderful experience as well. Partly um, what I learned from my cousins and <laughs> family members who were along on that trip and just immersion in family lore Including my online visits since then, I have learned so much about my own family and about world history, not, not only this country. I hope to get back there in person in 2024. And I hope that every American also gets there at some point. It is a treasure and a gift, like much of the Smithsonian collections, only more so and possibly more critical to the survival of our collective national and global life, culture, and history. Wow, that was impressive. Um, I, I just wanted to have a, a, a time check. Uh, we've been on the air for 23 minutes. Yes, that's almost right. exactly okay. what I have. Okay, good. And, <laughs> and, you, and you were speaking just then for 14 minutes. I know you like, yeah, I do like, like to, to know that. Thank you. Know that. Okay, good. And I do have a question. Yet, mm -hmm. just one. Well, I have a lot of. I always have a lot of questions, but I have a question. But you know, numbers always drive me crazy, and and get my attention. And you mentioned about the 130 year history. Mm -hmm. What and, am I counting uh, from? Yeah. <laughs> the birth of Henry Barnes. To so, what? To my birth date. Oh, because to your birthday. Okay. I, I, my family. Okay. My family. To your birthday. Yeah. You know, because I was really listening. I, I was listening, honestly. I could that's tell. How I, I that's can what, well, I got the 130, except, except that your family history has been going on for 206 years. Right. But what, based I, I on will, Barnes. I will repeat know. for you. These were origin stories for me. Okay. I, I understand. Henry I understand Gordon now. Enslaved 130 some years before I was yeah. born. Okay. Okay. And and I I think it would be good if you if you if you mentioned the date again. To, okay. To mention that your family history continues on. Yes. Sure. Because right away I said, well, wait a minute. You you know it's. <laughs> it's not over. 
206 <laughs> years since he was born and, and you're carrying that history on and your family has, and you mentioned stuff about your family, mm-hmm. you know, being, you know, different, different um, livelihoods and positions and stuff like that. And, and I think, you know, just so that, and now you know, you do not want to ever confuse an audience. And <laughs> I, I was, I, I just caught that difference in, in numbers. Okay. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's good. Not I mean, a criticism. I knew, I knew that 130 was going to be confusing. I just didn't have time really to think through okay. what else I should say. So thank you. Yeah, well, well, yeah. So, and, and, um, and I enjoyed, I always enjoy hearing about your family. Um, well, I do too, <laughs> as you yeah. can tell. Well, um, I do, and and um, as I was listening to you, I was thinking, I am absolutely the wrong person to be on a, on the radio show today. Why? Because because I have you know because I um, no I don't I don't really believe that, but I, that's what popped into my brain. I said okay. I'm here be, I'm here because I'm here. And, and because I like doing this, and you're very kind to have invited me so long ago to join you, and, and you never told me I had to go away, and so I haven't. <laughs> um, and, um, and it's always been a pleasure. But my experience in speaking about this today, and I want to, I want to, what did I say, I want to give a preview or something, or, or maybe a warning. Or a, you know, you know, be kind to the messenger. Because I'm going to speak about my experiences and um, which are, I, I know in the past you and I have discussed my beginnings and learning about Black uh, people and, and, and but my, my experience I think is unique. And I would love to be this, the uh, the uh, guest speaker in a black classroom sometime, um, especially since I'm old enough that I can take abuse easily. Um, that is that I was very ignorant, and and I don't think that is a terrible bad word for a person to be labeled with in as a as a young person. And ignorant just means that I didn't know anything, and I wasn't exposed to things. In a, in a way to make me stop and say, whoa, this is awful, or I can't believe that, or you gotta be kidding me, or something like that. But I really was that um, untouched by anything about black history for so much of my early life, my youth. I, I lived in a absolutely, hundred percent white neighborhood in my schooling I went to I never ever sat in a classroom with a person of color in any class I ever attended in nine years of elementary school four years of high school four years of college and in my graduate education classes I honestly do not remember being in classes with any black students. Now that is just maybe an old man's poor memory now, but I do not remember any black students in my graduate classes in, in as I was pursuing my master's degree and another 87 hours beyond the master's degree. So and that's not necessarily by choice, except by where I went to school. And um, so my, I'm going to tell a few stories about my experiences. Um, and I, I want to emphasize that anything I talk about as far as behaviors, I am not going to make no judgments on. And I have and I don't make judgments on when when behaviors based on race or ethnicity or religion, stuff like that, because 
everybody does things in in you know based on how they were raised or how they were influenced by their friends or peers or their relatives or their all kind of other things. So these are just some of my interactions over the years and a great deal about my learning over the years. And um, so here we go. <clears throat> the first time I spent time, really spent any time more than walking by or standing around um, somebody of, 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 of a different race was in basic training. 17 years old, just a, just a, a month before my 18th birthday, I went to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. The reasons I joined the Army at that age are so crazy that if I told them on the radio and anybody was close to a policeman, they might say, I think you should go and take that guy, <laughs> take him someplace. He's saying crazy things. Anyway, um, 17 years old, Fort Jackson, South Carolina, induction center. About five days after we got there, got there on a Saturday, I guess it was five days. The following Wednesday, they put us on trucks, drove us just a short distance to our basic training company area had us grab our duffel bag, throw them off the truck, and they were screaming the sergeant saying stuff like, when that bag hits the ground, you better be standing near to catch it. We were on the truck throwing them down. I, I, I was just barraged by insane screaming and yelling and uh, well, some curse words, not too much, but you know, some this is and that's and everything. Anyway, I wound up in the second platoon with Sergeant Dixon, who was a nice young sergeant. I have no idea exactly how old he was, but he, he had a young wife and she was just about to have a baby. And he told us that the very first day we met him um, and he had a deep Southern accent. I, I loved hearing him talk. Of course, half the people I was in basic training with in that, especially half the people in the building I lived in, the second platoon, there were about somewhere, I guess, between 40 and 60 men. I have no idea for sure how many. Probably, you know, I guess if I really looked at some of my paperwork records, I could figure it out. But we lived on, in a building that was two, full, two floors. And there were four squads. And I guess there were there were probably 18 people in each squad. So let's say, I don't know, 36, maybe 15, 60. I don't know, 15 people in a squad, maybe. Anyway, about a third of that platoon, maybe a little bit less than a third, maybe a fourth, were black soldiers. African American young men. There was only there were only three men out of our company, four platoons, two hundred and twenty men. Out of those two hundred and twenty men, there were only three who were over the age of twenty-one. Two hundred seventeen of us were under twenty-one years of age. So I wasn't the only baby, <laughs> though I was one of the youngers, youngest. Um, and it was the first time when I lived in that building with these other men, probably somewhere between around 50 other guys, and that I was with black people. I mean, I, I, there were young black men that slept in the same room with me there and there were black men downstairs and when we all day during basic training we worked together we went to classes together we sweated together 
uh, in the evenings we polished our boots and laughed about things and listened to music and on when we had to do get ready for for uh, inspections I just remember a couple times I, I I wish I could have taken a picture we didn't have cameras in those days they were they existed but we didn't have them in basic training and that and, and we didn't have phones of course but I wish I I wish I could create a picture or was artistic enough to draw a picture paint a picture of a group of young men cleaning up the barracks, getting ready for inspection. And one of the vivid pictures I have in my mind that I wish I could recreate were probably six of us in the latrine, scrubbing the floors, scrubbing, cleaning the walls, washing things, scrub brushes, hands and knees in our underwear and three out of the six were black. And I was thinking, this is really something. And the more I think about it, I wish I had that picture because I don't, I, I wonder if anybody would believe that. Anybody who I knew as a kid, you know, I didn't have any African-American friends. Once I tried to recruit a kid I met in, the, in Patterson Park uh, I saw him play in baseball with some friends of his, and 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 he, I, I asked him, "Do you play for a team?" No, and I said, "Boy, we could really use somebody like that." Because I watched him throw and catch and everything, and he he was walking away from his friends. He walked by us, and I say, "Hey, do you play for anybody?" And we talked. It was his name was Dennis, and I I said, "I'm play for a church team." And boy, we could use a guy like you. We don't, we don't have anybody in our outfield who could throw. I play in the outfield and I have an arm like you. Anyway, we talked and I said, do you come here, you know, in the park? He said, I'm here almost every day. And I said, well, I'm going to ask our coach if we can get somebody from that's, you know, I said, you know, I said, are you Catholic? And he said, no. <laughs> I said, well, that's Okay. He said, I said, I know guys on the team who say they're Catholic, but I don't think they're Catholic because they're not very nice people. Anyway, he and I got along and I, you know, I was shocked when I did approach the coach who was a nice man who explained to me that we couldn't have Dennis on our team uh, be, because he wouldn't have fit. And, and, he, and then finally he just said, look, he's, he's a, a black kid. You told me, he said, the priest is not going to let church. There are no black kids in this community. And I said, and, and I've been laughed about. This has caused people to laugh at me when I told the story earlier in my life. And it's okay, because I was ignorant. I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't understand that. I couldn't understand why. All I all I cared was Dennis could throw the ball really well, a lot better than I was able to. Anyway, um, so in the army, I got to meet guys who could do things, and and could man could run, could soldier like crazy, do push-ups, could all kind of things, and I and I made. What I would consider, in my mind, I made some friends. Not that I ever saw them afterwards for very long, because after basic training, everybody goes all over the place to different schools and stuff. But I made some from nice connections, and I did learn some things. And I think it was the time I was in the Army, 1959 to 1962, at that time, I didn't see a lot of uh, prejudice towards, in, in, especially in basic training, towards anybody except the guys in basic training. Every sergeant yelled at us equally. Some of the sergeants were white, some were black. And I couldn't tell the difference between black or white when they were yelling at me behind me or 
you know, or, or yelling at any of the guys uh, because, you know, I, I learned as I got older, <laughs> that was part of being a, a, a sergeant in basic training. Yelling was one of the first things. I think if you couldn't yell loud enough, they wouldn't let you be in charge of, of troops. Um, but uh, I, I didn't see any, any what I would con have considered racial prejudice. We were all picked on by the sergeants. And I didn't see a whole lot of stuff about race between the guys in the barracks. And I guess it was like probably w was because we were all being picked on. At least that's the way I, I thought of it. We were all being made to do push-ups until our, our, our arms were killing us and, you know, hearing stuff about how stupid we were and how lazy and how fat and, you know, how useless and how we probably would be only good to be, you know, practice, target practice for the enemy and stuff like that. Just incredible. It, it it took me probably I was in basic training for ten weeks after the big after the warm up stuff, and I, I think it probably took me until maybe the eighth week before I dawned on it was just pretty much a big game to these guys, to the sergeants, because I started to notice sometimes if if you paid attention to them when they didn't think you were listening, you you did hear them little smirks and laughter and chuckles at some of the things they were be they were talking about and and i thought they're really not this mean i bet if you met them someplace else if you went to their house they probably have decent wives and children and they don't probably you know anyway and then as i got older of course as i got into my 20s and 30s and and, and started to get some maturity i i realized that it was like a game you know, and later on in life, as I was uh, when I was a coach, I realized coaches use some of the same techniques the sergeants did too, to give you know to give teams a hard time about this or that and motivate them and stuff. So anyway, after the army, and, and I and I really did have I enjoyed the army. It was the best three years of schooling I had without having a formal education uh, degree from it. But I've considered my DD-214, my papers of separation when I got out of the Army with, uh, you know, a, an, an admirable discharge and all honorable discharge and all that stuff. I, I realized that those three years were as valuable as any of my other many years in education in elementary, high school, and in college, and in graduate school, as far as growing up and learning about, about the world. But after, after that, when I went through college, graduate school, and I became a teacher, I think is when I finally, finally started to learn things about, about people. And one of the things that I learned was, and I had to learn pretty quickly in my fourth year of teaching. My first three years of teaching, I taught at the high school that I attended, Catholic high school, 1,200 boys, all white. There were no black children in my schools, ever. So I, after three years there and noticing things that bothered me, I moved to the public school. And part of it was because it dawned on me, if I completed my master's degree, I would automatically get a $3,000 raise. And if I moved to the, from the private to the public school, I would get <laughs> another bonus. <laughs> and so, it wasn't, it wasn't such uh, idealism or anything. It was economics. I was a young married man with a new baby. And in 1970, I began teaching at a public school. And I was pretty terrified for two reasons. Public school in Baltimore County, 
I was going to face a big difference. Actually, the second reason was far less scary to me at the time or challenging is that I was going to be teaching black children. Not many, but there would be black children at school. But the main reason I was pretty terrified was I was going to be teaching girls. I had taught for three years in a great high school with a male population of 1,200 boys. And there was one female on the staff of the teachers. And she only lasted two years while I was there. I was there for three years. She only lasted two years because it was decided by the, the principal after her second year that there was trouble having a female teacher in an all boys school. And, I, and that's all I heard. That's, that was his remark at our faculty meeting of why the lady had left school. Um, and I, I never did find out, and I really didn't want to find out what, what that meant, because um, the, the guy seemed to like her as a teacher. I didn't get to know her personally. So in public school, I got my first, you know, education and dealing with with black students. And this is some of the stories I, I wanted to relate. And I want to be sure that I get across the fact that I am not making any judgments on behavior, just other than being amazed at the behavior of teenagers and thinking, was I like that? <laughs> and then and when I would look in by myself and look in the mirror and say, oh boy. So when, here it is, one of the very first things one of the very first things that happened to me in, in, in public school was this uh, guy who was a football player, turned out he was a football player, looked like a footballer, but large black student came into my ninth grade science class and looked me in the eye with a big smile on his face and said, what's up, dog? And I immediately inside said in my brain, the hell did he just say to me? He called me a dog. This is in my head. And a guy in the, sitting in the front row in front of my desk, who was, had been in class government, looked, saw my face and, and kind of leaned forward and said, he's saying, how are you doing, pal? And this was a, 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 a white kid. And, and, and the big guy just looked around. And I said, hi. And he, he walked away and sat down and he, the kid and I, after class, the kid said, you thought that guy was calling you a name, didn't you? And I said, yeah. I said, I'm, he said, um, are you new at this? I said, yeah, it was my first year in public school. He said, Phew. well, he said, not everybody uses the same you know, dialect and stuff like that. He said, you're going to hear a lot of things maybe that I don't, he said, have you ever worked with black people before? I said, um, not in a classroom. And he said, well, okay. You, he said, you might be shocked at some things you hear. Uh, and I was. That, that very first week of teaching, I found out there, that there was a minister um, a black minister, a church in that neighborhood, who was telling kids, black kids, that they should not play sports for white people, for white coach. And I was, accidentally, I was a new coach. They didn't have an indoor track coach that was happy. My first week in, in that school, I became the indoor track coach because the guy that was the indoor track coach who had kind of inherited it and didn't want to be the indoor track coach found out that I was running to keep in shape. I was still playing soccer. And, 
and he went and during lunchtime he left the lunch table went down by the end of lunch he came back and i was the indoor track coach he had convinced the principal that i had experience in running and that i had uh, all kind of crazy stuff anyway i became an indoor track coach and i wanted to coach so i tried recruiting some black students and this is how i found out that the this minister was talking about the you know, don't run for the white man, stuff like this. And I was so shocked about, I went and talked to somebody, but I didn't, I don't think I got much satisfaction out of the conversations I had. I talked to the athletic director and he just said, yes, something you have to deal with. You just have to treat all the kids the same way. So I started trying to recruit some runners and and I ran into some real things like I would stop the group of kids in the hall and I said, hey, I'm the new indoor track coach. I'm looking for people to come up track. Think about it. Our first meeting is going to be and I gave him the date and this one kid said, why are you talking to us? I said, I'm just trying to recruit kids from the track team. He said, and you think because we're black, we'll be fast or something? I said, I don't no, I'm just trying to get guys on the tracking. I don't know if, if you're fast or whatever. I don't care anything like that. I just want to get kids on the track team. And I, and I, I didn't fuss with them or anything, but I, you know, and I was so frustrated by that. And I, I did. I talked to a couple of the other guys. I met a guy on the, on the faculty named Mr. Moraniel, who was a, a black, young black guy. And he and I had gotten to be a little bit friendly. And he laughed. He just he, he just laughed like crazy. He said, "He said, you don't you don't know much about black people. You just got just ignore that." He said, "The best thing to do is to learn how to make a joke now and then." And he said, "Just be yourself. Don't pretend. Don't ever pretend that you know something you don't know." And I really valued that. So anyway, I did learn that. You got to, you got to just relax with the kids. So, one of the things I did that year, I, I taught a couple of things: ninth grade science, and also I taught a math class. And in that math class, this is at, at the, it was in this, actually in the second semester. It was later on in the year, but this this is something that I, I I learned that if I got friendly with the kids in a way that I could, you know, talk to them and be honest about stuff. When I made a mistake, I was willing to admit it, stuff like this. Um, I, I, in the second semester, I was asked to teach a, a class uh, was like remedial math. Uh, kids who had struggled with math, but had to have this, uh, a math thing, uh, you know, credit. And, and in that class, there were a group, there were about, uh, maybe one third of the class was you know, black students, and there were six or seven black boys, a couple of black girls, and the rest of the class were white students, and they were all people who had struggled and with algebra, and so I was working hard at, at the end of the first marking period. I was giving out grades. And I was told by other teachers, don't give students their grades before the report cards come out. Because, um, you know, you'll get a lot of grief. Give them the, wait till they get their report card and let the, you know, let them get their grief from their parents. And then, they, then they'll talk to you about the grades. But I decided that, you know, I had grades already recorded. Why should I keep them to myself? The kids work those grades. I was still thinking like a kid. I was going to give out the grades. So I gave in a class. And this particular class, the guy in the first row was the, he was on the basketball team. He was a star. He was probably the, he might have been the best looking male in the school. He was a handsome young man. And all the girls liked him. All the girls, black girls, white girls, every girl liked him. I even noticed that the uh, female teachers said, hi, Dan, and stuff like that. They didn't even talk to him like some of the other ones would say, 
Mr. So-and-so to a boy in a class, you know, like Mr. Jones or something. They called him Dan because he was, you know, and I'm, you know, that was another one of my things learning. Uh-huh. Even the, uh, the, some of the adult women teachers would, would be flirting with students. And um, so I, I passed out these grades. As soon as I handed him the slip of paper with his name on it and his grade, all I said was his name and the grade, just a small pupae. And I was walking by and he said, a D, give me a D because I'm black. And I had been working, going, trying to, you know, work with the kids and everything. And on the spur of the moment, I turned around and looked at him. Now, I had just described this guy. He was handsome, athletic, popular. And I looked, turned around and I said, what? And he said, you gave me a D because I'm black. And I looked at him and I said, I did not. I gave you a D because you're ugly. And I kept walking. Well, the other guys, the, the other black kids, boys, I, I was like, a, to me, it was like a miracle because I didn't plan it. But they picked up on it and they got on his, they started. Did you hear what the man said? The man said, you ugly. And I'm, that's a bad imitation, but, but that's the way. And, and they all started laughing. And then the other kids started laughing. And I just kept going, passing out the things. And finally, I turned around and uh, glanced over my shoulder. And he was laughing. Because he realized that was nonsense. He was not doing his work. He didn't deserve a good grade. And it had nothing to do with him being black. You know, and... I think that was a that was a, a such a learning thing that it helped get me onto the learning curve. That you just got to be yourself when you deal with people, and and not make judgments about why they're doing things or how they're doing things, but learn to relax and don't be different. Don't treat a black student different than you would a white student. That's another thing I learned very early on in teaching. If you stop a, a kid from running in the hall, don't only stop the black kid who's running in the hall. Make sure you stop the white kid who's running in the hall also. Because otherwise it looks like you're only picking on one kind of person and not picking on any child that's running in the hall. And um, as I went through the first couple of years of my teaching, I learned, especially, especially with the humor, that there are people who, who, you could get along with people as long as you were fair and honest, and you didn't pick on anybody because of their size, their color, their voice, their religion, and stuff like that, you know? And, I, I hearken back to those sergeants in the army. You know, pick on all the recruits. <laughs> Treat all the guys in basic training as if they're fat, slow, dumb, and they're going to get you killed. <laughs> and that way, you'll, you'll mold them into something. And, and I think if I ever did anything as a teacher, I hope that I treated pe- people equally. I probably made mistakes in my career, but I can't think of any time when anybody could have said, Mr. Z, you're not fair to this group of people because of their, you know, height or their weight or their skin color or something like that. So, and I've been talking far too long. <laughs> it was it was great stuff. <laughs> I've heard that story before and I love it every time. But there were some new flourishes in there. I didn't know yeah. teachers were even flirtatious. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It's a great story. Yeah. One of my best runners, I, I, I had coached this kid who was the best runner in the country one year his, in his event. In, in track and field news, he was recognized nationally. And as a senior, he got passed in some things. He, he 
had a, a teacher who gave him a break and let him turn a term paper in a week late because she thought he was, you know, stressed because he was this athlete. And, all. and I went in her room and yelled at her and everything. I thought she was going to cry. And I, I said, I can't do this. I want to try to get this kid in college. And he can't go to college if you're going to just give him a grade and let him turn in, you know, all this stuff. And But he got away with murder with every female teacher he had because he was good looking he was a great athlete and you know and he wound up going to college and lasting one semester which was it was all her fault no it wasn't all her fault it was (laughs) it was his genetics (laughs) we're out of time this is fanny crawford and stosh you're you're a co-host for the Enlightened Radio Storytelling Hour at enlightenedradio.org. We're independent community radio broadcasting from Martinsburg, West Virginia, Bolivar, West Virginia, and Hagerstown, Maryland. We offer our listeners a window into the world of storytelling by traditional and non-traditional tellers, encouraging you, our listening community, to share, preserve, and expand all of our stories. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for John Case and... A lot of uh, roots music today. Uh, roots, yeah. kind of on the countryside, you know, on the backside of the barn, kind of thing. Music. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> okay. Um, That's good. Yeah, so it'll be good. Be a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, thank you guys for 